Hello and welcome to a new episode of Keeping It Civil, the legal, regulatory and current affairs podcast by Hassan's international law firm Gibraltar. In today's episode, we teeter with some trepidation into a conversation with a guest who is not with us in the Hassan studio, but connecting remotely from London. My guest today is Lord Hugo Swire. Lord Swire is the Deputy Chairman of the Commonwealth Enterprise and Investment Council. By way of background, Lord Swire served as the Conservative Member of Parliament for East Devon from June 2001 to December 2019. Amongst other roles, he served in David Cameron's first Shadow Cabinet as the Shadow Secretary of State for Culture, Media and Sport between 2005 and 2007. In 2010, in the Coalition Government, he was appointed Minister of State for Northern Ireland. In 2012, he was appointed as Minister of State at the Foreign and Commonwealth Office, where his responsibilities included Latin America, Central America, North America, Asia, Asia-Pacific, Australasia, the Commonwealth as an institution, as well as a number of other roles. In 2011, Lord Swire was sworn in as a member of the Privy Council and was subsequently knighted Knight Commander of the Order of St. Michael and St. George in 2016. He retired from the House of Commons at the 2019 general election and since 2022, he has been a member of the House of Lords. Thank you very much for being with us today, Lord Swire. It's great to have you here with us. It's my pleasure, Sowin. Um, in today's episode, as we've been discussing, I, I want to do two things. In the second half, we'll be discussing the Commonwealth Enterprise and Investment Council and the work that it is doing and that you're doing with it to bring the Commonwealth closer together in the business context. But for the first part of our discussion, I wanted to take the opportunity, as a little bit of a political enthusiast and former frontline politician myself, of having you on the program to explore your perspective on a couple of current issues, and in particular to understand how your experience and your time as a Minister of State in David Cameron's government influences your view of certain current affairs. The first and very obvious issue is, you won't fall off your chair, um, is Gibraltar, and particularly the co- in the context of Brexit. As of course you know and understand, the local Brexit context is peculiar to the particular circumstances of our location, our history, identity and the structures of economic activity. It is as peculiar, if entirely different in so many ways of course, as the Northern Irish Brexit context. As a veteran of operating in the context of issues as thorny as the Good Friday Agreement, and in particular the formation of the Northern Ireland Executive under the terms of that agreement, what in your view was the key to ensuring that all sides were able to deliver on the promise of that agreement and come together to make it work? Well, that's a that's a fastball, uh, Selwyn, to kick off with. Um, it's rather topical because we're discussing these matters on the day that uh, Northern Ireland goes to the local elections, which are important. And they're important because Northern Ireland has been without a government, uh, a devolved government, uh, Stormont. It has not been sitting uh, for too long. And uh, it's quite clear that the DUP were not prepared to go back into government, certainly until the local elections. So the next few days and weeks are critical. Uh, and we very much hope that actually a new government can be formed uh, in Northern Ireland. Um, and then the whole Windsor Agreement can kick in after that. But look, it's been extraordinarily difficult to reconcile all the different factors. Um, and this was one of the reasons that I was a reluctant, uh, voted reluctantly, if you like, uh, to remain, because I had two or three concerns, most of which actually have been, I've been uh, right about, I think. But one of, one of these was I couldn't work out, I couldn't reconcile how you could have uh, a land border uh, with a country in the EU and another country not in the EU, in the UK, 
um, without having some sort of physical border. And uh, the idea of putting any kind of physical border back in between the Republic of Ireland and Northern Ireland was completely impossible because that would, of course, become an attraction to uh, to terrorists. And and we kind of just we we kind of think that post Good Friday and all that, you know, obviously Northern Ireland is a very very different place to that which it was. But, you know, there are some bad people still there. And uh, the security service, the police, the PSNI, do an extraordinary job in, in suppressing them. Um, but it wouldn't take much for some of them to kick off on both sides, loyalist paramilitary as well as um, as re- Republicans. So, so a hard border, I think everyone agreed, had to be avoided. You then have to get around the issue of what do you do with goods and services and people. You know, Schengen and non-Schengen issues which have a read across actually for Gibraltar but I'm hopeful that uh, Stormont will be up and running soon and we can move forward with this uh, Windsor agreement which is not perfect it's imperfect but I think as I said in the House of Lords it goes a long way to addressing some of the issues which have stopped this working uh, to date. Yes and and um, talking about the Windsor framework it's it it strikes me as as an as an observer these days of of politics in the UK that the compromise that it is 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 you know the deal on that on Northern Ireland that has been struck or developed at least under the watch of the current PM is a model of studious attention to detail, hard work, and probably zero showmanship. Actually, in contrast to you know um, <laughs> how how it has been of late or in recent years. Um, it's a deal that's come together in the time-honoured way things, you know, we recall used to be done conscientiously, diligently, and in the best traditions of the art of the possible. Um, how right or wrong am I that that's, you know, what I what has delivered the deal as it is right now, imperfect as as you as you rightly point out it, that it is? Um, and what do you make of you know the prospects of those those mechanisms such as a stormont break? I mean, clearly the executive needs to get back to work, and and that is a matter that is that has to be resolved on the ground. What do you make of the prospects of of, of, of the development in, in that context? Well, I don't dissent from any of the assertions you've made. And um, I think uh, it's the defining characteristic of the current uh, Prime Minister, Rishi Sunak, that he is, um, if maybe he's a technocrat, whatever, a technocrat, whatever mm. description you want to have of him, but I think he is a believer in getting on and, and doing the job after actually what has been an extraordinarily exciting, you could argue, but unsettling period in British politics, which has seen a more rapid changeover in prime ministers than we've ever witnessed uh, in our history. So we do need a period of stability. And I think the Windsor framework, which he came up with, was a result, as you rightly say, of hard work, attention to detail, and uh, you know, pursuing it to the end, perseverance. And diligence. And uh, as I say, it's not perfect. I mean, I was one of those who, when I was in the House of Commons uh, before this, during all the Brexit debates and the post-Brexit debates, was trying to find a way through all this miasma um, and uh, came up with an amendment which was not in turn selected by the Speaker, which would have given a break to Stormont and all this. But actually, none of that worked. None of that worked. None of it was uh, acceptable. Um, and, and, and I think, as I say, that the Windsor framework is as close as we're going to get to something that actually works. And look, the proof of the pudding will be in the eating. I'm sure it can be amended further down the line or tweaked or whatever the phrase. But there are some fundamentals which need to be respected. And I think they are respected within the context of this framework agreement. Certainly viewed from the 
the Gibraltar perspective, where of course there are some parallels, but you know, very important distinctions. Not least the fact that you know we've always had a hard border. We've always understood that that was never it was it, you know it was never an issue for us, and therefore. You know, when Brexit happened for us, it was going to be almost gentler from that perspective than it was going to be for the rest of the UK. Simply because. Well, I, I always say that the, you know, the, the, the three island, my three island uh, point, which is that we've now got uh, Malta, uh, Cyprus, uh, and Gibraltar, uh, who are uh, occupy an extraordinary position to be uh, mm. uh, all members of the Commonwealth. That should present some interesting opportunities for you in Gibraltar, as it does for the people of, of Malta and Cyprus. But I'm sure we'll be discussing those later on. Yes, I mean, regrettably, of course, no longer being in the EU is something that you know had a had a significant impact on on us, but one that we were able to temper with continued access to the UK, because it turned out that 90% of the services that we that we produced here in Gibraltar were UK facing, even though they were via the EU passport. Mm-hmm. And so that 10% as you know, as much less significant as as it is compared to the, to the full bulk of it, it is something that you know we would like to be able to have an opportunity to to work with the EU on. And you know, I don't know the extent to which any kind of access in the financial services context is something that's being incorporated in discussions on on the deal that we are yet to make uh, with the EU for our future relationship. But well, well, you're right. I mean, the border discussions that have been going on between uh, Spain and Gibraltar have been, and the UK have been, uh, and the EU uh, have been very interesting. And um, you will have been more than aware of the reports in, in the press about uh, uh, the Dominic Raab situation and the question mm-hmm. as to whether officials had misinterpreted or got, gone beyond their instructions from the cabinet and so forth. But yeah, these are sensitive issues. These are very, very sensitive issues which need to be handled with diplomacy, with understanding, with dexterity, and with perseverance. And uh, we can't expect these things just to be resolved by any kind of bellicose or belligerent behavior. It has to be more uh, sensitively handled that, as you yourself said, I think, in the time-honored way of how things used to be done. Yes, absolutely right. Could not, could not agree with you more. We met last week, you'll recall, to discuss what we were going to be chatting about today at the House of Lords, and it was great to see you there and to to have an opportunity to walk through through those corridors. Um, And I thought it would be interesting for our listeners to hear a discussion on something else, which is quite topical, and what's more topical at the moment, or at least last week, than the monarchy itself. Again, you know, in full disclosure, for a number of reasons, I tend to lean in the direction of being entirely supportive of it, even if I do hear and understand many of the views expressed in favour of or the alternatives. I think I have a good idea of where you might stand on the whole thing, but I wondered if you'd given any thought to how we might see the monarchy developing during the reign of King Charles and after him, after him, uh, King William V, as, as, I, as I understand he will be known, as views continue to change and adapt over the next 20 to 30 years. What, what, how do you see that progressing? Again, a, a little bit of a curveball, this one, because... <laughs> not something you might apply yourself to every day. Well, no, I do. And after William the Sixth, of course, you'll have George the Seventh, which uh, so in you and I may not be around yes. to see, <laughs> but it does show the uh, the continuities there. Look, I, I just walked uh, across St James's Park. It's a lovely day here in London, and uh, there were cars parked up and every possible uh, uh, lay-by and so forth, of, full of people wearing their best hats and medals and so forth, all heading off to a Buckingham Palace garden party where the royal family will greet them. I don't know whether the king or queen themselves will be there, but these are people who have served their communities in certain ways and want to go to the garden parties and be part of it. And I think 
I, I think the the monarchy, um, you know, we've had good monarchs, less good monarchs, but I think it's a question of whether you believe in the principle of a constitutional monarchy. And if you don't, uh, what would you prefer? And if you would prefer an elected presidency, an elected head of state, which would be really the only viable alternative for you, then I would invite you to say which elected head of state um, you think around the world has the same... Um, you know the same convening power, the same global influence uh, as, as does our king, and before him, his mother, the queen. So mm. I think it's hugely valuable to not only to the United Kingdom, uh, but to all those other outposts associated with the United Kingdom, and of course, wider than that, the Commonwealth itself, of course, of which the king is uh, is head, elected by the other heads of the Commonwealth. So I think the the monarchy is in a good place. It's always going to be uh, an element of uh, uh, of society. Always going to be anti-monarchy. I think it's stayed pretty much the same in the low twenty percent. I don't mm-hmm. think it's gone up or down much. And um, I think the king will be a good king, um, uh, and in turn, his son, I'm sure, will will, will do excellently. And uh, as I say, King George may be um, something that you and I have to watch from our celestial clouds. <laughs> but um, it's it, it is in a country such as ours, which is a um, you know very old country. Um, I think to have running through it uh, the theme of a monarchy, uh, more recently a constitutional monarchy, it is something of which we should be proud and which we should um, be very jealous of in terms of uh, guarding it. Um, mm. And uh, whether or not, I think that the issue here now is what size the monarchy should be, what the, you know, what the monarchy should look like in the 21st century. I think there's a terrible danger in trying to, to go with the flow uh, mm. and be with the monarchy. It has to stand aside from all that. Look, I heard some criticism of, um, uh, of the recent coronation. I wasn't uncritical myself because peers were not uh, automatically invited, so I didn't uh, make <laughs> the cut. So I saw it like most people on telly, and on it was a very telly. good yeah. way of seeing it. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think it got the tone just about right. It was pretty faultless. I think, in fact, it was faultless, mm. and it was the UK on show. And it's something we do. With I say this hopefully without complacency or arrogance, but I think it's something we do better than any other country in the world. Yes, I I couldn't agree with you more. That pomp and pageantry is done nowhere better than 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 in the UK. That's absolutely right. And I think it's you're you're right that in the context of you know the. Uh, her late majesty's tremendously successful uh time in uh, you know um it's i think it's incumbent on on the on the monarchy to 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 continue in those best traditions to 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 serve and to be to stand apart as you say in a way that almost will help to preserve the the role of the monarchy in in, in the modern in a modern britain um, yeah i think that i think the um you know that the challenge for the king is, I think, his idea of a streamed-down monarchy. Um, you know, which would have been him, the Queen, uh, the Prince of Wales, Princess of Wales, mm-hmm. uh, his family, um, and uh, and you know Prince Harry and his family, uh, the Duke of Edinburgh now and his, and his wife. Um, but of course, now you've got a couple who are not not on the main field in terms of football, not playing in the form of Duke of York and. Uh, and Prince Harry, so that's slightly knocked that idea sideways a bit. Um, mm. So I think, 
and, and certainly more, there were quite a lot of more elderly members of the royal family, such as the Duke of Kent, Princess Alexandra, the Duke of Gloucester, who are you know getting on a bit and can't travel as much as they as they would have done once. And uh, of course, the Princess Royal plays an incredible role. So it's already shrinking through age, um, and it's just a question of how you then can fulfil everyone's um, expectations if you have a too small a team. So I think that is going to be something that he will need to keep under review. Yes, absolutely. Uh, regrettably, we have to stop talking about my pet subjects and turn to the <laughs> <laughs> to the less thorny, uh, but no less interesting and important issue of the Commonwealth Enterprise and Investment Council, uh, of which Hassan's law firm is a strategic partner in Gibraltar, along with a handful of others. Um, the Commonwealth Enterprise and Investment Council is a not-for-profit membership organization that was established in 2014 with the support of the Commonwealth Secretariat and member governments. It is a network of businesses, governments, and organizations that are committed to promoting trade and investment across the now 56 member nations of the Commonwealth. CWIC provides a range of services to its members, including market research, business matchmaking, and training. It also organizes events, many of which are phenomenally interesting and that I've had the pleasure of attending over the last two years, to promote trade and investment within the Commonwealth. How long have you been involved with this project and how important is it? Well, I was involved in it uh, when it was in a slightly different state, when I was uh, a minister in the Foreign Office and with the responsibility for the Commonwealth as an institution. And uh, they came to me and I said that they should be supported it was then taken over, really, by Lord Marland, Jonathan Marland, who had brought his uh, dynamism and uh, enthusiasm and mm. turned it into an extraordinarily different organisation. I mean, it is testament to his energy that we are where we are now. And we're a very small team. Um, I, I came on board as deputy chairman uh, when I stood down from the House of Commons, or just before 2018-2019, and, um, you know, there's a small team, Lord Marland and I are meant to act in a sort of slightly non-executive way, although we, we seem to act in a more uh, executive way, maybe more an executive way than some of our colleagues would, would like. Um, but it is quite hands-on because we are a small team. We uh, cover the 56 countries of the uh, Commonwealth. We have offices now in many of those countries, Gibraltar itself, as you mentioned, but also in the Caribbean, um, in Malta, in Colombo, in Sri Lanka, uh, in uh, Accra, in Ghana, in Lagos. We just opened one in Nairobi, um, one in Singapore. And so we, we have offices now increasingly around the Commonwealth. Uh, and our, our sole remit really is to, as you said, is to grow trade, um, within the Commonwealth family. There's something called the Commonwealth Advantage, whereby on account of a common language and legal system, it's 21% cheaper for one company in a Commonwealth country to do business with another one. And that's a significant saving. Yes. But it's also a huge ready-made marketplace of 2.5 billion people, which is a third of the world's population. Um, 60% of whom are under the age of 30. Mm. So it's a huge population uh, under 30. And it, it is about the future. And people say to me, well, the Commonwealth, you know, in the modern age, what is the, isn't that all to do with Britain and Britain's colonial legacy? Well, 
It's not. I mean, I would concede that the Commonwealth was born out of the dying embers of the British Empire. But it is now, in 2023, something very, very different. Um, and if you look at some of the most recent countries to come into the Commonwealth, uh, such as Gabon, Togo, before that, Mozambique, Rwanda, they have nothing in their histories which connects them to the United Kingdom or the United Kingdom's past at all. Mm. Uh, they are countries that just see the advantage of being in this family of equals. Uh, and as I say, you know, it's like a club. Um, judge a club by two things. One is the, the quality of the other members of that club. Um, and also the viability of the club can be judged by the length of the waiting list of those who seek to join. Now, in both instances, um, I think the Commonwealth scores pretty highly. Mm, yes, absolutely. And, I, and obviously in the context of, of Brexit, um, CUIC's role in the development of a global Britain surely has to be on the up. It can't be, it can't be going in, in any other direction, surely. And so yeah, yes, I would just caution that, that, that CUIC is, is not about, it's not a bilateral Commonwealth UK organisation. Mm -hmm. It is a pan-Commonwealth yes. organisation. Oh, well, um, so then maybe it's a question of rephrasing and saying, so the importance or relevance to, to the UK of CWIC as, yes, as an organisation. So, no, the importance mm -hmm. of, of the UK to CWIC and, to, and the importance of the Commonwealth of the UK. Mm. Yes. Um, you know, you can't ignore the markets of uh, Canada, India, South Africa, Australia, to say nothing of emerging Africa. You would be completely mad. And uh, we yes. would like to see the British government, we'd like to see all governments embracing the Commonwealth more, but that leadership as well, in part, uh, you know, should come more visibly and demonstrably from the British government. And uh, the fault line of the Commonwealth is that the, uh, our organisation is based here in London. The Commonwealth Secretariat um, is based at Marlborough House in London. Uh, the Secretary General, uh, Patricia uh, Scotland, is, um, is, a, is a, a, a British peer of the realm. And you know, the King is the head of the Commonwealth. So we can't ignore the fact that there's a heavy uh, leaning towards the UK and London. But at the end of the day, um, you know, the Commonwealth is about nations, willing nations who've come into this organisation as equals um, and they will increasingly have their say. And what would you say, um, what's your impression of what CWIC has been able to achieve maybe in the last almost 10 years in terms of delivering on that vision of the closer and more beneficial economic and business engagement by and between members? Uh, of the Commonwealth. Is, is well, it's not quite. It's not quite like it's not ten years yet. I don't think. Um, what I would say is, in the last two years, three mm. years, we've grown yes. uh, enormously as an organisation. And um, like everyone, we were extremely nervous about the negative effects of uh, the COVID pandemic and people working remotely because we are about introducing people to each other and companies to each other and trade delegations. We weren't able to do any of that, but yes. nor was anyone else. And, and, and candidly, I thought we would uh, shed quite a few of our strategic partners. Um, and actually, in the event, we didn't. We did lose some, but there were, those were for other reasons. Um, but we've put on since then 25 to 30 new strategic partners. And, and you know, we're sending out um, uh, forms and proposals uh, on a daily basis to countries as well as companies who, who are looking at what we do and want to be part of it. And I think one of the things that distinguishes us as an organization from uh, any uh, sort of uh, uh, national trade effort is that when we take a delegation to 
wherever it may be, Rwanda, whatever, we're, we're actually advertising it to all our members across the 56 countries of the Commonwealth. So you've got a very mixed group of people going to these things, which in a sort of bilateral trade region from the UK to Germany, whatever, you used to get British businesses. Nothing wrong with that. It's just that we do something on a completely different scale. If I was going to point to one thing where I think it all came together very visibly, um, we are mandated by the Commonwealth Secretariat uh, who ha there's a meeting, as you will know, every two years called the, the uh, Commonwealth Heads of Government Meeting, colloquially known as CHOGAM. Um, and last year it was in uh, Rwanda, in Kigali. And we are mandated by the Secretariat to run what's called the Commonwealth Business Forum, which is a sort of day and a half before uh, on the business front. And we did that, uh, we've done that in London before, we did it in uh, Valletta before, we did it in Colombo before. It's what we do at these CHOGAMs. Um, and we had 1,700 delegates from all over the Commonwealth, uh, endless heads of state and things, and uh, it was a huge success. And many, many companies did extraordinary business and deals uh, as a result of that. Um, the next Chogum uh, we do, and the next business forum we do, is going to be um, a little bit more challenging because the Chogum itself is going to be in Samoa, uh, in the in the Pacific, um, and um, uh, that's going to be logistically quite uh, challenging for us actually to to put on. But we'll find a way. Yes, a relative, relatively far flung place, uh, but <laughs> how far the I don't think you need to qualify the distance. <laughs> it's very far. <laughs> well, you don't know these days, so I'm best to err on the side of caution. Uh, and as and as you know, of course, uh, Hassan's is one of the one of the strategic partners here in Gibraltar, and we also form part of the Commonwealth Legal Network. Of course, being being a law yeah. firm. What do you believe is the key advantage of that membership of CWIC and, and in particular, of course, and, and we discussed this last week, the, the CLN provides its members. I mean, I, certainly for us, it's been about being able to connect with and exchange inf information and, and, and relevant details with the growing network of legal members. But in your view, what, what's, what's the key advantage there? Well, I'll tell you the concept of it, and I think uh, you get a double hit because uh, by being a member of the Commonwealth Legal Network, you're automatically a member of CWIC, so you get uh, a double hit as you like, if you like. Um, so what happened is I th looked around uh, about a year and a half, two years ago, and th saw that we had a number of legal firms, yourselves included, um, as our strategic partners. And I thought, uh, along with the team, wouldn't it be a good idea to build up a network across the Commonwealth of... Uh, legal firms who could peer review. In other words, um, you could only become a member of the legal network if the existing members wanted you to. Mm. Um, and as a way of sort of making sure you had top, top legal firms with whom everyone was happy. Um, and to do that across the Commonwealth so that you, you have a ready network both for those businesses who are legal firms to cross-refer business, but also our strategic partners who want to go into new markets. I mean, one of the ways you can, frankly, get your fingers burnt if you go into a new market you're not very familiar with, you can lose huge amounts of time and energy and money by picking the wrong partner for a JV or whatever else it may be, an investment. If you can use a, a CLN-accredited legal firm, you know you're going to be handled extremely professionally and well. Um, so we've got about uh, 15 or 16 uh, members across the Commonwealth now, of, of whom, of course, Hassan's is one of the leading ones. Um, and uh, we could easily have another 10 from London, but that wouldn't 
fulfill what we're trying to do because we're not trying to stack up in one place we're trying to create a genuine network so you have cross referrals going from you know Guyana to Samoa and back again um, because not all legal firms um, I, I'm aware that legal firms have many arrangements with in the legal business with other legal firms but not everyone uh, has the kind of coverage in fact I don't think a single legal firm has representative offices or whatever in the 56 countries of the Commonwealth mm. using the Commonwealth legal network properly um, you can get access to all these markets without having the expense of having to have your own offices or representative offices there so uh, I think it's working well um, it's uh, chaired by Supo uh, Alasupo Slashori who is a former Attorney General of Lagos and he's a uh, very very well respected um, and I think we will get it up to about 20 uh, quite soon. And at that point, we'll pause and think and look at the gaps where we would like to uh, invite legal firms to come in from. Yes, I mean, for us, certainly, having knowing that we can reach out to partners in, in all of the Commonwealth countries as and when the need arises. And, of course, you know, post-Brexit, the Commonwealth is something that certainly Gibraltar's focus has turned towards much more in in a much more determined fashion than it was before. You know, we de we departed the EU. Um, it, it's something that we 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 have certainly already uh, had the benefit of already, and we'll be leaning on more and more as uh, as months and years progress, no doubt. Look, and there are all kinds of conversations going on about the Commonwealth um, outside what we do. I mean, I'm going to a meeting in the House of Lords tomorrow morning, which is uh, organised by Lord Hannon. Daniel Hannan, who was an MEP, who is that's to discuss some kind of um, Commonwealth uh, business visa. Oh, well, that's an interesting thing. There's lots of talk about whether or not you could have some kind of Commonwealth um, trade agreement. I think that's more complicated. But uh, but all these things are discussions we should be having um, because you know we've ignored uh, the commonplace, <laughs> the Commonwealth, uh, yes. for too long. We've ignored it. And, and now, certainly from the UK's perspective, post-Brexit, we need to examine, you know, where our interests lie and where the opportunities arise. And I would submit that's within the Commonwealth. Yes, there, there's a real, there's a real uh, wealth of opportunity in, in, in standardisation and developing and, and adopting standards across sure. the Commonwealth, which, which falls short of a trade agreement, but which helps to facilitate. Activity. Well, we're doing work on that as well. Our, our Chief Executive, Rosie Glazebrook, comes from that background and uh, she's, she's pushing that very hard. Fantastic. Uh, we, we've, um, I, I wanted to, to round up, and, and I know that Seawick uh, is very busy and that there's always a busy calendar of, of events coming up. You've mentioned Chogham for next year, I believe it is, in Samoa. What other events are coming up that, uh, that you're particularly uh, excited about? I mean, we, were, we had the Investment Trade Summit in London late last year. That was, that was a great event. Uh, what's on the cards for, for this year? Well, we're planning another one uh, for later on this year. It was a great success. Uh, we've got a, another gathering. Uh, our next um, Global Advisory Council is in a few weeks' time in the City of London. That's made up of our um, strategic partners who nominate someone to come to that. It's a very good networking event. Mm -hmm. But we're also now planning, already planning, uh, the next uh, Commonwealth Business Forum, as I said, in Samoa. Um, we're talking to Melbourne about the uh, Commonwealth Games, which they're hosting uh, thereafter. And we're putting together now uh, a number of trade missions um, for the autumn. And I, I just mentioned one thing, uh, although we've talked about the Commonwealth, um, there are countries outside the Commonwealth 
um, who are looking at the Commonwealth as a, a, a group of, uh, of nations and wants to have part of it or be part of it in some way. A lot of com- com- companies in the Gulf, for instance. Um, so we will be doing, we're taking some trade delegation, I think, to Dubai again. Um, we know that the Qataris are interested, the Saudis are interested. Everybody's looking at the Commonwealth, thinking, goodness, how can we benefit from this, although we're not members ourselves? So that that's exciting for us as well. And, and f- more importantly, it's exciting uh, for our strategic partners. Yes, um, we're, we're looking forward very much to continuing to par- to participate in in ZWIC and CLN and, and to and you know to, to chase the opportunities that we know will come um, from being involved in, in such a substantial uh, trade trade area. It's it's certainly going to be of value for us, Lord Twyer, I'm very very grateful for the time you've given us today. Um, what I wanted to say is to all those who are listening who may be interested in, in CWIC, you know, you can always log on to cweic.org to get more information and to, and to reach out. And of course, by all means, to reach out to us and we'll be very happy to have our conversations with you about our experiences with, with CWIC. With that, I'm, I'm, going to, I'm going to sign us off. And thank you very much for, for taking the time to, to speak to us. Uh, thank you very much. And uh, we'll see you soon. Thank you, Selwyn.